Republican presidential candidate William Weld joined us for civil liberties in the presidency. Previously, he served as 68th governor of Massachusetts and the Libertarian Party's nominee for VP in the 2016 election. This event was presented by the Warren B. Rubman Center for Justice, Leadership, and Public Policy in the American Civil Liberties Union of New Hampshire. This is the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about the law school and apply by visiting law.unh.edu. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire. Well, it's great, great to see you, everybody. As I was confessing outdoors as a, as a young lawyer in Boston, I was a card-carrying and quite active member of the ACLU. But uh, things just fall away. But uh, I'm, there, I'm there in principle. Uh, I had uh, occasion to meet uh, in Concord a few weeks ago with a group of uh, women uh, who, who have a priority of uh, domestic abuse. Uh, and as I said to them, that was uh, a particular priority of mine, uh, both, both when I was governor and earlier when I was uh, hold your booze, uh, for seven years a prosecutor in the United States Justice Department. But one thing I did do was introduce uh, Victim, uh, victim witness rights and appointed a special uh, victim witness coordinator in every U.S. attorney's office, and I became uh, head of the, all the U.S. attorneys. There's 94 uh, in the whole country. Uh, some states like Mass have only one. Some states like New York uh, have four. Uh, but uh, by the end of my tenure as head of that committee, that group, uh, everybody had a victim witness uh, coordinator in their office. And I had been a trial lawyer in Boston before uh, becoming a U.S. attorney. So I'd had occasion to um, sit in the back of the courtroom of a morning waiting for my case to be called. I was always a litigator, and people think being a litigator is a very frenzied uh, occupation. Actually, it's a very good occupation for a person who's lazy because you get to be paid handsomely for sitting in the back of a courtroom for hours on end waiting for your case to be called in the motion session. Uh, And that's where you learn a lot. And one thing I learned was that on Monday mornings, uh, women would come in uh, absolutely black and blue in front of the court and say, my boyfriend or my husband beat the tar out of me on Saturday night. He really uh, was Uh, beside himself with liquor, but maybe not that beside himself. And I want justice, and I want him locked up. And the judge, this is in the early days, well before I got anywhere near a public office, would lean down and say, well now, sweetie, tell me, what did you do to annoy your husband or your boyfriend so much? I kid you not. And I saw that a lot. And I remembered that when I became governor. And uh, the cases of a number of women who've been convicted of uh, manslaughter or in a couple of cases even murder came before me wearing my pardon authority hat. And uh, the people uh, who were appealing for them for clemency, for a pardon, said, look, uh, my, uh, my client was acting in self-defense. Uh, the man chased her around uh, the apartment several times with a knife. Uh, her injuries were A, B, C, D, E. This is all from the transcript uh, of the proceeding. So it's obvious that he was, she was beaten almost uh, unconscious. Uh, and at the last second, uh, he lunged at her, and she struck out with uh, a curling iron, which is the only thing she could lay her hands on, and uh, you know, knocked him on the side of the head, and he fell down dead. 
And for that, you're going to have her. Uh, you're going to have her uh, in prison for the rest of her life. That that's not so great. And a lot of these women have been beaten so much for so long that they had sort of something like PTSD that soldiers get uh, in war. So uh, I commuted the sentences of uh, uh, eight of these women uh, to time served. And some of them I think I pardoned, and some I just commuted the sentence to get them out. And I think it included at least a couple of murder convictions. And uh, I based it on uh, what we called battered women's syndrome. And we were the first jurisdiction to recognize, I wasn't a judicial system, but I had the pardon authority, uh, the battered women's syndrome. And we then required that all the judges, <coughs> all the judges take a course and be lectured by the police and by uh, attorneys who worked for me. I, uh, assistant U.S. attorneys uh, occupied a lot of senior positions in state government then. And boy, did those, cop, uh, those uh, judges hate being lectured by the cops because they knew that uh, you know, all testimony in court is not always truthful. Uh, but the police did say, here's the reality on the ground. And so all the judges got the idea that if they wanted to continue to be sitting judges and not have uh, investigations or hearings into their conduct, maybe they should behave a little differently. And after, uh, uh, after a year or so, the, the, uh, you know, the whole temper was totally different. Uh, and I considered that uh, a, bl a blow for truth and justice, and, and same for uh, same for witnesses. And, uh, you know, I very early on, uh, I ran into some people, uh, I was buying a, a toaster, and they were talking about a, a political figure in Massachusetts, and, and uh, uh, it was Governor Dukakis, and, and they were Greek. And I said, you must be very fond of Governor Dukakis, who, who I don't have any crow to pick with Michael. He and I were law partners together. And they said, no, we don't like Governor Dukakis at all. And I said, why is that? And they said, uh, because he's against the, de uh, the uh, death penalty. And I said, oh. And they said, we had one son, and when he was 20 years old and he was a senior at MIT, uh, he decided to go uh, uh, for the weekend in Maine with a couple of guys he knew from, you know, just from the, the neighborhood. They weren't MIT students, but they were just kids he knew. Uh, but he left a note behind saying, if anything happens to me, uh, these are two guys that I went off with, and I'm a little bit apprehensive, to tell you the truth. So they meet on uh, Route 1 near Augusta, and uh, a trucker is uh, driving by. It's after, after dark, and the trucker sees uh, the, a sharp, hears a, a report from a rifle and sees a big flash. So he calls into uh, uh, the... Uh, environmental authorities, and he says, somebody's jacking deer up right off Route 1, right on the road. Jacking means shooting deer with a, with a light at night. Uh, and uh, so they come, and they find that these two kids have just shot uh, the MIT student dead in absolute cold blood uh, for $200 and some minor marijuana transaction that they had just done. And they take off, and he was all that this couple had in life. And so they followed all his proceedings and, uh, as, as much as they could. And then they told me that people never tell us when he's coming up for parole at uh, the prison in Maine. And, uh, uh, you know, we went up to the prison and they say, we understand that there's a parole hearing for these two guys who killed our son in cold blood 
uh, four years ago or three years ago, and no one ever told us about it. And they say, oh yeah, we're really pulling for Frankie and Johnny. This is their third or fourth uh, try at this. Uh, and uh, everyone just loves them. And I don't know, uh, I, I, I got on the other side of that issue. And, and I'm not sure where the ACLU probably doesn't like all this, all this uh, prosecutive type talk, but procedural uh, protections for witnesses are not quite as important as procedural practices for victims, but they're important. And, and witnesses, like victims, uh, got very short shrift when I started practicing law, which was in the 70s. And I like to think I had something different. And that's really giving people what, what I call civil rights in the judicial uh, system. Uh, more, more broadly, uh, as I was uh, saying outside to Ms. Ruska, um, my sort of uh, political science philosophy is, is pretty heavy with ACLU-type notions. Uh, I, my, my favorite uh, political science book is written, written by a guy named Louis Hartz, and he says, the essence of a democracy is that the individual shall never be thrust in a corner. Uh, some of you may know I ran on the libertarian ticket for vice president three years ago. It was a friend of mine who I'd served with as a fellow Republican governor, Gary Johnson, asked me just to join the ticket, and I'd always liked Gary, so I did it. Uh, but I'm definitely over on the libertarian side of the Republican Party. Uh, when I worked in Washington for Ronald Reagan as a prosecutor, half of us were libertarians, half of us were movement conservatives, meaning social conservatives, which I'm very much not. But we would all laugh about that and then go, go get the government's uh, work done. Now, of course, in Washington, it's much more acid and uh, you don't have that kind of uh, uh, cooperation. But one of the reasons I'm running is I think the first reaction of my opponent, and my only opponent is Donald J. Trump. Uh, the, the first reaction of my opponent is, hell yes, let's thrust the individual in a corner. Uh, and if someone excites my attention in a negative way, like uh, these, uh, these despicable Khan family uh, who were who filthy Muslims, uh, and sure, their kid, got killed in the Middle East fighting for the United States. But, and sure, you know, the father gave this little speech, but the mother's standing there and she doesn't say any, sitting there right next to him and doesn't say a thing. Why? The answer is obvious, because she's been muzzled by her religion, because she's a filthy Muslim. This is the president, president of the United States. He didn't use the word filthy, but he used every other word in those three or four sentences. Uh, and I just think that's, uh, that's unworthy. Uh, of the office, as is a lot of the stuff he, he does. His political apologists say he's a counterpuncher. He's not a counterpuncher. He's just completely uh, vindictive. Anyway, these are some of my thoughts, and I don't know how much time I was supposed to. I think that was perfect. Okay, great. We okay. will get started. I won't say that's all I got to say, but that's I'm, I'm I'm good with that. So. Welcome. Thank you all for coming tonight. We're going to do a combination of questions from the audience and questions that people have submitted on note cards. And I'm going to take the liberty of being the moderator to ask the first question, um, one that is very applicable to today. If you haven't followed Twitter, um, the New Hampshire House of Representatives voted successfully today to override the governor's veto on death penalty repeal. So repeal will now go to the Senate next week, but we've been asking candidates, would you support a national repeal of the death penalty? 
you know, I hate to disappoint uh, because I do love the audience and what it stands for, but uh, I've seen too many walking advertisements for the death penalty to sign on for that. What do you mean by that? Walking vicious, vicious murders of children, mm -hmm. you know, murders committed with extreme atrocity. And I would reserve the death penalty for those cases, but um, you don't want to know the facts of the, of the cases I'm talking about. Do you think it's a deterrent? I do. I do. I actually have some evidence of that in my uh, prosecution of uh, organized crime figures who are not candidates for the death penalty unless they kill people along the way. But the Italian organized crime guys who we prosecuted and put away for their natural lives were perfect gentlemen. Uh, when I was prosecuting them in the federal court in Boston, you know, Jerry Angelo would come in, good morning, Mr. Well, good morning, Mr. Angelo. It was nice to see you at uh, uh, this restaurant in the North End yesterday for lunch, Mr. Weld. As you know, my family owns that restaurant. Yes, I love Italian uh, bread, uh, bread uh, Mr. Angelo, that, that type of thing. Uh, later, when we moved away from the Colombians to the posses with the guns, uh, they killed the wives and children first to get the attention of the rival, so they'd be death penalty candidates. But um, anyway, I've had an odd career uh, with respect to that issue. We will disagree. Oh, no, I understand. Our interpretation, obviously, is research shows repeatedly that the death penalty is not Oh, I'm sorry, deterrent. I didn't tell. My my evidence is that uh, some of the guys and, and the wise guys in La Cosa Nostra thought it was a huge deterrent and, and testified in, in murder cases where someone else pulled the trigger. No, I wouldn't have pulled the trigger because I always think about the chair. Who knows? Yeah, I think that might be said. I don't know how real it is. Right. But respectfully disagree. Yeah, oh, no. Um, questions from the audience. First hand up in the white hat. Hello, Governor Weld. Um, my name is Amy, Ma sorry, wow. My name is Alex McEntee and I'm an ACLU voter. So I keep civil rights in mind when I vote. Um, I'm a genderqueer trans person and my gender lies between male and female and I use they, them pronouns. Governor Weld, here in New Hampshire, we have two bills heading to the governor's desk that would allow for a third gender, X, marker on state IDs and birth records. Would you support the establishment of a third gender marker on passports? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I was a, a complete leader in the United States in LG, I guess it was just gay and lesbian civil rights in the 90s. But uh, uh, that was my first month in office. I had, I appointed, uh, uh, who's mostly lesbian, but uh, judges, uh, members of my cabinet, uh, my, my chief of staff, and uh, my uh, revenue commissioner were a gay couple. I, I delivered the homily at their marriage, uh, at their wedding. I appointed uh, the woman uh, who uh, became chief justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Court, who wrote the opinion uh, holding that uh, marriage equality is constitutionally required under both the Equal Protection uh, and the Due Process Clause. That went to the Supreme Court and became a big part. Uh, uh, I was also an amicus filer on behalf of uh, the plaintiffs in, in the case uh, handled by uh, uh, Ted, uh, uh, Ted Olson and David Boys that produced the ruling uh, in the Supreme Court case. I was on the side of uh, the complainants. So I like to think uh, that I played a big part in the LGBTQ uh, movement, and even though we didn't we didn't get to we didn't get to T and Q until relatively recently, but I was out there by myself. I'm not complaining. I'm just stating I was out there by myself in politics for 20 years, 
There was no other governor, no other senator who would touch this stuff, much less a president of the United States. So check it out. I think you'll find that that's, that's true. So yes and hell yes. <laughs> so we're going to try and go back and forth between the audience and the cards. Slight change in topic. Uh, do you support repealing the Patriot Act? And we've asked this of multiple candidates. Yeah, I would, I would modify it. The Patriot Act is uh, a, a pro-law enforcement statute passed under, I think, George W., or was it earlier? It was right after 9-11. George W. Uh, and, uh, you know, the caricature of the Patriot Act is it, uh, it authorizes FBI agents to go into libraries and ask uh, who's been taking out books about the Middle East and stuff like that. And, yeah, I mean, it was true. Even... Uh, Jim Sensenbrenner from Wisconsin, who's a Republican, I think, who was chair of the committee that produced it after a few years. And I was the same way. When it came in, I was fine with it. I think I was a federal prosecutor at the time. But people did point out excesses. Uh, so I'm in favor of amending, amending the Patriot Act. Uh, I don't know about complete complete overhaul. I mean, I'd have to delve into the national security provisions. I will say Maybe it's related. I think it is related to this. I, I think uh, classified material is overclassified, uh, and I know whereof I speak. Uh, I had uh, code word classification when I was uh, head of the criminal division of the Justice Department. Uh, I can't even tell you the names of the programs into which I was briefed, or I'd have to do violent injury. Uh, but uh, so I'm familiar with all the various gradations of classification. And the ones at the bottom, like secret or classified, certainly secret, you know, you can't, it's illegal to divulge secret information. Secret information, in, in my experience, often is not, is information that's embarrassing to the government. So the government doesn't want it out there. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm inclined to think that uh, Edmund Snowden is a hero and not a traitor. So further deponent saith not. Can I push you on the details of, of, so you'd amend the Patriot Act, which we fully support. Do you have thoughts on how you would amend it? We would rather see, see it repealed. Right. But if you were to amend it, are there significant changes you can? Well, the, one, the ones uh, I uh, think of is uh, the authority given to investigative agencies to go uh, collect information about people's uh, personal and private habits and what books did they take out of the library. Please, please. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's part of uh, the sort of NSA issue of over-spying mm -hmm. on Americans. And, and then the other one is classified information, which I think is over-classified. And the penalties for mishandling of classified information are are too severe because in a lot of cases, uh, listen, if you're a member of the club uh, and, and some, someone in the CIA saw me leaving a, a red, red jacketed folder and walking out of the restaurant, what would happen to me? Nothing, because I was a member of the club. Uh, and, uh, you know, Sandy Berger, who's a friend of mine, goes in to read some highly classified stuff, puts it down the front of his trousers and leaves the Justice Department like this. That's a little different. Mm -hmm. But he was a member of the club, so not too much happened to him. We'll start right here in the front row. Uh, hello, uh, Governor Weld. Um, so as president, um, uh, much unlike the current president, um, would you limit Customs and Border Patrol checkpoints to 25 miles from the border zone instead of 100 miles to, to limit... Um, overreaches 
of uh, trying to detain immigrants and cross different borders in the United States. Thank you, sir. And I can just I'll add one detail on that because that question is very unique to New Hampshire, which is CBP says they have jurisdiction 100 miles from the border. For New Hampshire, that means 100 miles south from Canada and 100 miles over from our sea coast. So basically our There's entire state. There's not a lot state, left for you guys. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so that's why this question often comes up here in New Hampshire. Yeah. No, I have a very different uh, view of uh, immigrants uh, than Mr. Trump does. Uh, and I think it's part of... Uh, his, uh, his and Steve Bannon's strategy for the campaign back in 2016 is to try to stir up uh, as much uh, hatred uh, and divisiveness uh, as possible through whatever means possible. I mean, they would literally, on their website, and their, they would circulate images of George Lincoln Rockwell, who was the founder of the American Nazi Party. Uh, and. Um, uh, no one knew who George Lincoln Rockwell was or what he looked like except those white supremacists. They sure as hell knew and they appreciated the nod in their direction and by the time anyone focused, they said, what was that? What was that? Uh, it's just an example. Uh, but I think uh, they wanted to uh, foment uh, insecurity among uh, uh, working people in the United States that unless they supported Trump in his violent anti-immigrant rhetoric and, and reality, his real actions, unless they did that, some brown person was going to crawl over the border from Mexico and take their job. So I think ultimately they, were, they wanted to they started out with uh, trying to stir up racial insecurity. You know, unless we maintain pure bloodlines, uh, we're all going to be overridden. You know, uh, saying that America should not be a, uh, a melting pot and hasn't been for the last 200 years is really spitting into the wind, you know. So I think he's blinking reality, and it's a very cynical uh, effort to get people uh, as as on edge, their teeth on edge, as possible so that then they can be exploited. Uh, at the end of the last campaign, I went on Morning Joe and I was permitted to read for a few minutes from 1984, the George Orwell novel. And early in that novel, there's a there's a section called Two Minute Hate. Uh, and if you remember the premise, it's everybody has a TV screen in their apartment and Big Brother can see what everyone's doing through the TV station. So you have to watch uh, through the TV screen. Uh, you have to watch uh, or else you get in big trouble with the state, which is all powerful. So every afternoon at a certain hour, they'd have two minutes hate, and everyone had to get and look at their TV screen, and two minutes of hate would be beamed into the room. And at the end of it, everybody was filled with hate. They weren't quite sure who they hated or why they hated them. All they knew is that they were filled with hate. And guess what that did to them? It made them malleable, which I think is the end game of the Steve Bannons and Donald Trumps of the world. I, I think these issues couldn't cut more deeply. I think the stakes are very, very high here. So just going back to the question, as part of countering that, would oh, you yeah. limit no, no, CBP's the, jurisdiction? No, no, the, I mean, the president's rhetoric, uh, he, he doesn't go into details too much. He has a one-word one uh, platform for climate change, a mm -hmm. hoax, uh, and a one-word platform for uh, uh, for uh, immigration and border control, 
wall. Well, the pros who work in that field say even to keep the borders secure, and I got no problem with that, but they say the way to do that is with more people and more drones. It's not with a wall, because people just go around or it just doesn't get the job done. But Trump likes the symbolism of a wall because it it's, uh, excludes people. It, it stimulates thoughts of we versus they, which is exactly what he wants. Uh, and he wants to promote a society for where uh, individuals live in the shadows, which I was saying to you outside, I think is uh, very bad for a democracy and it promotes disrespect for the law. And President Trump has no respect for the law, any kind of law, criminal law, civil law, even mores and, and, and norms that govern candidate, uh, can, uh, candidates and uh, people who hold the highest office in the land. He spits on it. He spits on our finest traditions. A free press, he says, a free press is the enemy of the people. So it's the big lie. It's the big lie. So is that a yes to limiting CBP jurisdiction? I'm with jurisdiction? him. I'm with him. I'm with him. I'm with you. Limit yeah. it to 25 miles. Yeah. Good. Other questions? So, um, recently, Representative, uh, when Representative Justin Amash of Michigan made news for calling for Trump's impeachment, there began to be a lot of chatter about if he should run for president in the same primary. Would you support him entering the race as another competitor to both you and Trump, or would you prefer he join your campaign as your running mate or just endorse you or what? Well, I would encourage Justin Amash to get involved in the 2020 race in whatever respect he wants. A lot of people think he'd be a good candidate for the Libertarians uh, as the top of the ticket. Uh, and uh, I, I think that would be a great idea. I admired him for being the first congressional Republican to stand up and say uh, that this, uh, this president has committed impeachable offenses, which, by the way, is clear beyond any argument. Uh, 750 former federal prosecutors, 750, including myself, and Republicans and Democrats and 20 of us have been confirmed by the United States Senate, including me, and 750 of us unanimously signed a letter saying he committed obstruction of justice on multiple occasions as detailed in volume two of the Mueller report. And I'm here to tell you, I worked on the Nixon impeachment. In fact, I wrote the brief about what constitutes grounds for impeachment of a president. And Donald Trump is so far beyond anything Richard Nixon ever did in the category of obstruction of justice that uh, there's no comparison. So Justin is right when he says uh, the president uh, is subject to impeachment. Impeachment lies, uh, meaning it, it's okay as a matter of law. Uh, and um, uh, so I think he's correct about that. What the House does, I don't know. I kind of agree with those who say that what the president is doing is trying to bait the Republicans into impeaching him. And then he'll, you know, have a whole year of the House bringing in these uh, proceedings. And then at the end of it, if the Republicans in the Senate are still sound asleep, uh, nobody on the Republican side will vote to convict him, uh, or maybe it'll be 50-50, as it was with Bill Clinton. And he said, I won, I won, and he'll carry that into the election and see if he can get away with that, as he tried very hard to get away with after the Mueller report came out. Uh, he said, total exoneration, total exoneration. That's all he said. Uh, and it's true that Bob Mueller, who worked for me in the Justice Department, very straight guy, very thorough prosecutor, found no evidence of a conspiracy with Russia. 
Okay? But that was not the only allegation. The other allegation was obstruction of justice. And he's cold cock, uh, cold cock guilty uh, on that one. And that's a criminal offense. And in fact, uh, Richard Nixon, the third article of impeachment against Nixon, was uh, obstruction of the investigation of Congress. So going back to an issue that we chatted about outside before the event, um, the war on drugs, we have a question that says whether the issue is framed in terms of economics or social impact, the war on drugs has been a wasteful failure. As president, would you end for federal prohibition of cannabis as a first step? Oh, I sure would. I'd take it off uh, Schedule 1 as a, as a Schedule 1 narcotic uh, first day in office. It's uh, uh, full disclosure, I'm on the board of a New York Stock Exchange company that's in the business. But, but this has been my position for uh, a long time. In fact, uh, again, in my first year in office, uh, I said, look, uh, there's some evidence here that uh, uh, marijuana cannabis is useful in treating uh, glaucoma and nausea from chemotherapy. Uh, let's, let's let it go. Uh, it can be regulated like uh, every, other, uh, every other drug by the, the National Institutes of Health. I mean, morphine, after all, is a heroin derivative. Heroin is very illegal. Morphine, I can attest, is sometimes very useful, like when you've just had your wisdom teeth out. I had all four wisdom teeth out, and I had a shot of morphine afterwards because it's quite painful, and asked the uh, doctor if I could come back uh, next week and have my other four wisdom teeth out. But <laughs> fortunately, they were, unfortunately, they were not available. Uh, but no, I mean, as again, as I mentioned to you in the hall, the statistics are that if you're black as opposed to white, you're four times as likely to get arrested for possession of marijuana. And you're four times as likely to get a jail sentence, a prison sentence. And that sentence is likely to be four times as long as if you're white. So that's, that's not exactly rough justice. That's a 64 to 1 uh, ratio. And I do think it accounts for a bunch of the unrest in inner city and minority uh, neighborhoods. Uh, so I not only would make, uh, uh, I'm actually for states' rights here. I think if Alabama doesn't want to have cannabis be legal, the federal government should not tell them they have to make it legal. But most states are probably going to come out wanting to make it legal. Uh, and, and I think that's the way to go. And I've read up on the uh, evidence from Israel where it's been studied for 30 years. They basically have had a human, human trial uh, for 30 years with 20,000 members showing its utility not just against pain, uh, but as substantively against uh, cancer. Uh, and, and you introduce it with uh, cytotoxins, which are cancer-killing cells, and it makes the cytotoxins much more effective. That would be C uh, CDB, which is a non-hallucinatory ingredient uh, in cannabis. So I think there are many health applications. I'm not a doctor, so I don't know, but based on my readings, and you have to go study in Israel because it's been illegal to study it in the United States, which is part of a, I think, almost conspiracy uh, by the federal government to demonize it, going back to the days of uh, reefer madness. So as a starting point, can we end the prohibition on researching marijuana? Oh, no, that would all happen day one. All happened day one. Good. No. It's an exciting day one. No. <laughs> um, I will ask, um, try and keep questions related to civil rights, civil liberties, if you can. We'll go up here. Thank you. <clears throat> Uh, one of the things that we've been seeing is an increasing scourge of partisan gerrymandering in the United States where politicians are drawing their districts right. so they choose their voters instead of the other way around. Right. Today, the New Hampshire Senate 
uh, unanimously approved a bill to create an independent redistricting commission to draw the maps for the next set of elections in New Hampshire. Is that something you would support on a federal yeah, level? Yeah, no, that's uh, independent commissions uh, are absolutely the way to go on gerrymandering. And uh, hyper-partisan gerrymandering is one of three or four factors that have led uh, to the extreme standoff uh, in Washington, D.C. today because the only way you lose your seat is in your primary. So the Dems have an incentive to go to the left and the R's have an incentive to go to the right, and then there's no common ground uh, within which uh, to compromise. And the independent commission is absolutely the way to go. And I can tell you, having presided over a decennial census uh, when I was governor, the one thing that the members of the legislature, and those are drawn by the state legislators, not by federal authorities, were terrified of was that if we all couldn't agree, including the governor, then it might go to court. And they didn't want any court <laughs> deciding whether their districts were fair or not. You know, the Constitution compels that a congressional district, they be roughly equal in population. They're each around 600,000 people. But it doesn't itself say that, uh, you know, you can't have a squiggly, a squiggly line. But the courts have looked through form to substance and have found substantive constitutional violations of uh, one person, one vote, and such like. And, and, and often the districts are drawn to try to canalize all the minority votes uh, into one district so there won't be more than one uh, minority representative where there could be three uh, if you did it another way. But independent commissions, uh, I think everyone agrees, would be the way out of the woods on that issue. So given the last couple of weeks, we can't get through an event on civil rights without talking about reproductive rights. Um, so I'm going to ask a specific question, but I would also love your reaction to some of the laws that have been passed in other states. Um, but specifically, would you commit to lifting the Hyde Amendment and other government bans on insurance coverage for abortion? I, I always did in, in office, and I'm appalled by the uh, laws in Alabama. Matter of fact, put out a strong statement on it today. Oh, we're trying to get it published. I guess it hasn't run yet. Um, do you and, want to give us the strong statement right now? Well, I just, I've, I've been pro-choice my whole life, and it's not that, uh, you know, half of my voters were pro-life voters and half were pro-choice voters. But to me, it's a question of power and political power and having a bunch of guys in Washington tell a woman 700 miles away uh, who they don't know anything about, and they don't know anything about her circumstances, they don't know anything about the circumstances of her pregnancy, that she can't terminate a pregnancy, even with the full support of her family, to me is mad. Uh, it's, you know, the libertarian in me doesn't like the government making decisions about personal behavior. Uh, when I was uh, a baby governor back in 1992, I actually spoke at the Republican National Convention in Houston. Pat Buchanan and all his people were in the front row. And I said, well, I want the government out of your pocketbook and out of your bedroom. And all the Buchanan guys lifted up their red, red signs, stood up and said, that's it, that's it. He finally did it. He finally admitted, he's gay, he's gay. <laughs> <laughs> These people were way out there. <laughs> Other ones, we'll go up to, do you want the microphone? Sure. Um, my question is basically, I know there have been states, like I was in Florida actually, and uh, I voted for the amendment to uh, give felons voting rights, or for, well, some felons, but a lot of things that's been ignored is felons also have, uh, are not just disenfranchised, but also have second amendment rights taken away. I mean, if you do a nonviolent drug offense, you can't own a gun even after your prison sentence, basically, so. And I think that 
a lot of gun control advocates basically ignore like how that can be used to further, you know, over incarceration. Like they focus on drugs, but also, uh, but also, um, basically, possession of guns is another thing. Even if you're a completely nonviolent offender, you can be sent to years for just, you know, holding a gun. So, what would you say about restoring the rights of felons to have Second Amendment rights in addition to voting rights? You know, I, I issued a lot of pardons, despite the fact that uh, my image when I came in was very tough on crime. Uh, unlike many people, I issued a lot of pardons. And Governor Romney, for example, never issued a single one, never found a case that he thought met the, the test. And I worked a lot with Governor Romney. But two categories in which I uh, issued a lot of pardons uh, were uh, one, one was possessory drug offenses, where I didn't think they should have been in jail in the first place. And the other was gun cases, and uh, people for whom there was absolutely no demonstration that uh, they weren't perfectly suitable and appropriate to own a gun. It was just a punishment. It was just to take something away from them. And they wanted to get a job, I will admit it, as a police officer. But they obviously couldn't without this thing on their record. So I would issue pardons there. And thank God none of them became a police officer and shot somebody. Uh, but on, on, uh, on guns, uh, I'm all for uh, laws that would, uh, you know, keep guns out of the hands of people who are going to have a problem with them, like any, like this kid in uh, the uh, the uh, Connecticut, Sandy Hook, uh, who's clearly uh, mentally troubled. Uh, and I don't see why, when you're going in to buy a shotgun, you shouldn't have to prove you took a hunter safety course. Because uh, I'm a deer hunter, and I don't like it when guys come up from Brooklyn stinking of. Uh, gin at uh, 9 o'clock in the morning and there's, they have buck fever so bad that they'll take a brush shot. That's not funny. Uh, so, uh, so I think hunter and believe me, if they took the hunter safety course that I took, they wouldn't do that. Uh, but, uh, and uh, so making, uh, making guns safer, yeah. Uh, bans on ownership of guns, uh, not so much. Uh, I don't think that's good. Uh, and, and this will not command unanimous support, but uh, I think there's 300, uh, 300 million rifles out there in, in private ownership hands. Uh, and if the government said, I want you to take uh, your firearm in and show it to the police, and we want you to do that every year, my concern is that the third year they might say, oh, before you go, you're leaving that with us. And the history of societies where the government has made it impossible to own a gun is not a pretty one. Hitler made it impossible for Jews to own a gun. So when the knock on the door came, there was no way they could resist. He killed 12 million people, most of them Jews. In Stalin's Russia, it was 20 million people. Impossible to own a, a firearm. Probably the worst ruler of the 20th century, Idi Amin, in Uganda, made it impossible to own a gun, slaughtered all of his political opponents in the country, which was about half of the country. Uh, and it goes back uh, hundreds, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years. So, you know, there are cases of ownership where I do think the law has a place to play. For example, if there's an AR-15 and you can just take a pin out of it and then it's a fully automatic weapon, no. That should not be manufactured because that makes it too easy to flout the law that you have to be a federally licensed firearms dealer in order to own an automatic weapon. Automatic weapon is the one that, you know, with the bandy arrows and it just shoots 150 shots a minute. And uh, that, that really has no use uh, other than uh, thrills and uh, war. Uh, 
So anyway, that's my thought on guns. You So that question hinted on one other issue that I want to touch upon, which is the restoration of voting rights. Um, this has come up recently in the news, um, particularly amongst the Democratic primary. But what are your thoughts on restoring the right to vote for people who are formerly incarcerated? You know, when I was a prosecutor, I was very much uh, against that. And uh, I'm, I'm not so sure now. Uh, under Under review. Uh, it's my libertarian days making me sympathetic. It's a step in the right direction. We're going to keep nudging you in yeah. support of yeah. the restoration of voting rights. Good. Other questions? Uh, do you want the microphone? Hi, my name is Lisa. I live in Dover. I am an ACLU volunteer and voter. You mentioned early, <laughs> early in uh, earlier about the um, the bias in the prosecution and pr imprisonment of people of color with uh, marijuana. Right. Um, and I'm curious about um, your. Sorry, I'm going to lose my train of thought. Your thoughts with regard to. Um, um, just in general, prison reform, um, uh, the um, criminal justice reform with regard to pr police brutality, the bias throughout the criminal justice system against uh, people of color, and what, uh, what you know, you've a lifelong prosecutor. How do we how do we turn that around here in this country. I was only a prosecutor for seven years. I, I, I've never done anything longer than seven years. The longest I've ever held a job was being governor. And even that, I left early. So I don't have this I have to be reelected obsession of these people in Washington. Matter of fact, I was national chairman of US term limits when I was, uh, when I was in office. So I think the criminal justice reform can stand a lot of uh, uh, criminal justice system can stand a good bit of reform, even apart from the racial uh, issue. I think we got to uh, reduce the number of people who are incarcerated. Uh, I believe the United States has the highest rate of incarceration in the world, which means it's higher than it is in China and higher than it is in Russia. And it, it really shouldn't be that way. And, and I think part of it is this re reefer madness thing. Uh, and, and part of it may be uh, racial. I think the, the grounds for picking someone up on the street in inner cities, uh, vary depending on the appearance uh, of the individual, and that extends even to Hispanic, not just uh, to uh, uh, Caribbean Americans and African uh, Americans. So, so those are cliches. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a, a real hawk on the Fourth Amendment, which is um, uh, the, the prohibition in the Bill of Rights against un unreasonable searches and seizures, because I've seen so much of it. I've seen so much of planted evidence uh, and phony traffic stops and the nightstick goes against the taillight of the car and now, oh, we found a traffic violation, so this is a search incident to a traffic violation. Baloney. They're just looking for marijuana in the glove compartment, or they'll, they'll do the entire trunk. Uh, and they'll say, well, we want to look in your trunk. And if the people don't know that they can say no to that, uh, then, then a lot of people say, sure, go ahead. And then uh, that's not the way it's uh, supposed to be. And, and I, I really don't like all the immigration enforcement stuff that Mr. Trump wants to do and have people knocking on the door at night and putting families in fear. It reminds me of the movie about the diary of Anne Frank. 
and when that knock comes on the door and they're just terrified that the cat who's hiding in the attic with the Jews is going to knock over the knock over the vase which of course is exactly what happened and then everybody gets carted off to the gas chambers and this is that's this is not that bad but it's it's putting classes of citizens in fear and respecting uh, and having tremendous fear of law enforcement and I don't think that's good for business uh, in, in a democracy. So there's a lot that can be done. Maybe some further bail reform. Well, let's start on that. Cash bail. We just had massive bail reform in New Hampshire last year that was uh, renewed again this year. Would you commit to ending cash bail? Yeah, no, I'm, I, I think that's the way to go. Uh, as we were discussing earlier, uh, I know there's a little bit of a uh, a rub with the uh, Marcy's Law advocates who think that sometimes people who, who get out easily on bail are the offenders, uh, and that's not a good thing. But the solution to that is just to have hearings on dangerousness. And actually, as a prosecutor, I argued in an appellate court that we should be able to hold people before trial if we could show that they were dangerous to the community. Uh, and that, that uh, flew uh, passed a very liberal First Circuit, I must say. Uh, I'm not sure it would fly past the First Circuit today, but it might, it might fly past the Supreme Court today where it would not have 20 years ago. That's the balance that we have in New Hampshire. We've yeah. eliminated cash bail, but we have dangerousness hearings. Yeah, well, um, you did it perfect then. I'm not surprised. Well, New Hampshire does a lot of things right. Um, I, I'm a great student of the book, uh, The Devil and Daniel Webster, uh, where it turns out that uh, Daniel Webster outsmarts uh, the devil, and uh, he's the quintessential New Hampshire guy, and he's, uh, just, he's just the hero of the book. And the last line in the book is, in that, and so that's the, how all this turned out uh, when the devil met Daniel Webster. Webster in New Hampshire, and the last line of the book is, I'm not talking about Massachusetts or Vermont. <laughs> so talk, uh, sticking to the Fourth Amendment for a minute, we have a bunch of questions about privacy. And one of the questions that has come up recently is in terms of the announcements recently that Facebook um, has lost your password or exposed a whole bunch of passwords. Um, we've done that with a series of pretty big companies. And so one of the issues that's come up is how would you enforce or penalize companies that are complicit in exploiting consumers' personal data? Yeah. Well, you need, you, you need the evidence, but I guess in s several recent cases we've gotten the evidence. Uh, it's tough, because on the one hand, I'm not in favor of the government taking over the Internet one little bit. So you could make an argument, you know, let the big boys play uh, and uh, just find them to death if you catch them doing bad things and do Justice Department investigations. The problem is these companies are so big and so rich that getting a fine that will deter this conduct in the future is, is very difficult. And uh, it may be the answer is not to put the government in charge of the internet, but to have uh, injunctive relief against the companies when they really are caught out in the carpet uh, that won't put the government in the business of running the internet, but will stop them legally from doing things, and then you go to federal court to stop them. That, I think, and I've been in commercial litigation for a long time, that, I think, would deter them. So one of the things that's come up kind of along those lines is giving people a property interest in their data. So if 23andMe wants to sell your DNA data to a biomedical company, they can do that, but they have to pay you because they're profiting off of selling. No, no, that sounds, that sounds like a good idea, because I'll tell you one thing that uh, big companies do notice is class actions. And I don't know about 23andMe, but uh, the, the biggest five 
companies, uh, their, their customers are in the hundreds of millions uh, of people, and uh, if each of the, one of them had uh, a $100 uh, you know, worth of privacy that was violated, and guess what? You get that in front of a jury, that figure is not going to be $100. It's going to be $100,000. And if they have 10 million customers times $100,000, yeah, that's a fine. It's not a fine. It's a judgment in a uh, treble damages class action, and, and that would, uh, that would uh, deter them. The other concept that sometimes is used in the law when we don't think there's a sufficient deterrent is so-called private attorneys general. You give people a private right of action, which is what you're talking about. If you have a pro property interest vis-a-vis mm -hmm. -vis the company, that's giving you a private right of action, a cause of action to go into court and defend it. So we're getting somewhere. Progress. Yeah. Other questions here in the front row? Thanks for coming. I take it you see freedom from fear as a basic civil liberty. And, and I read on your website that you favor a return to traditional Republican foreign policy. Uh, so uh, I also recollect that uh, the first President Bush did more in the area of arms reduction and arms control than I remember any other president doing. So I'm wondering what you would do as president about the current state of the nuclear arms race. Well, uh, I've spent a lot of time in abroad and on international matters the last 20 years since I left office, uh, both uh, in, in my profession and also I'm a member of a uh, group called the Interaction Council, which is former heads of state. And everybody except me is a former uh, president of the country or uh, prime minister of the country. But I knew a bunch of these guys, so they elected me uh, a member, Jean Chrétien from Canada, and of course I knew Bill Clinton quite, quite well, Franz Franiski from Austria. I'd met when I put Kurt Waldheim on the watch list for killing Jews uh, during the Second War. Uh, and uh, I knew uh, Obasanjo from Nigeria and Makapa from uh, Tanzania. Uh, and Leslie, my wife and I, Leslie, I should have introduced you before. <laughs> Any of my speeches, formal speeches that are any good? If you got something you don't like in some of my formal speeches, just uh, give, give her a call and give her a piece of your mind. Uh, but anyhow, so we get together. Uh, us uh, would be, you know, uh, custodians of the best practices for presidents and prime ministers every year, and we examine the great issues that keep heads of state awake before they go to bed at night. And the top four, they vary in order, but the top four are always the top four every year. And generally, the order is number one is nuclear nonproliferation. Uh, number two is religious sectarianism which is, has been historically a euphemism for Sunni versus Shia, but there's so much ill will going around here with the alt-right trying to stir up everybody's fears the, the same way Donald Trump does. Uh, and number three is water, and number four is food. But nuclear nonproliferation is number one. And these are the people who basically ran the world. Uh, and I, I do have, um, I do, I, I'm in the, in the uh, 
favor of returning to traditional foreign, uh, Republican foreign policy in the sense that I'm in favor of not insulting our allies. Allies are force multipliers uh, and uh, you know, not doing everything upside down and backwards the way Mr. Trump does in, in the foreign area, cozying up to the despots, uh, taking an anti-democratic view, both internationally and, and at home. You know, free press is the enemy of the people, please. Uh, so, but nuclear nonproliferation is number one. And I think Mr. Trump got way too far too fast with North Korea. And at one point, he seemed to be almost, it was after he'd, he'd fired the 59 cruise miss, missiles to take out the air base in Syria, uh, where they had launched the chemical weapons rockets on rebels in Syria. And that went down very well, because it was chemical weapons and a lot of kids were killed, so he was feeling his oats. And he came pretty close to saying that if Kim in Korea, who he had just praised for being a tough kid, this kid is a tough kid. He iced his own uncle, meaning he had his uncle killed. He iced his own brother, ho, ho, ho. That was the, the, his brother at the airport that the two women came up and put a, a poison on him and killed him. Uh, but th this kid is, uh, you know, going to have uh, uh, whatever the title of the book is, Full Fury, uh, Fire and Fury, uh, and uh, they're, they're not going to know what hit him. They're not going to go anything else. He was basically threatening uh, to put nuclear weapons on North Korea and annihilate them. And he was going to go to the country. This is the guy who thinks he can shoot anybody he wants on Fifth Avenue. And I'm sure he's persuaded himself that he could take out an entire country with nuclear weapons. And he would go on television and say, I'm so sorry to tell you, 12 million people are now dead in, in North Korea. Uh, and it's really very sad because it was a great civilization. And I had a wonderful relationship uh, with their president. And actually, uh, I would have been the best thing that ever happened to them. But the good news is we are now safe because our national security people found out that they were preparing missile strikes on Los Angeles and New York. And much as I hate California and New York uh, <laughs> and love the heartland, uh, you know, we've made America safe now. And I, I bet he could convince himself that he could get away with that. So, so he's a guy who might, I think, might pull the trigger. He's also very unstable and very insecure. And this is, I'm not a psychiatrist, but plenty of psychiatrists have written about uh, his apparent mental facility. And even in the last, uh, last cycle when I was on the ticket, I said, this guy is not sufficiently stable to be president of the United States. And that's with particular reference to the finger on the trigger. What would you do then as president? Well, I'd go right back into the uh, nuclear arms reduction treaty with Russia that he ripped up. It's not that it's the most perfect treaty in the world. It's just you don't want to take backward steps uh, in that area. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a, a man uh, uh, who was a professor at the University of Toronto who came and spoke at great length with our Interaction Council group. And he had just all kinds of ideas for little steps you can do to just make it unthinkable that that ratchet ever goes in the wrong direction. It's got to be a one-way ratchet going down in terms of the number of uh, nuclear warheads out there. Many, so many different steps to get there. I think we have time for maybe one more question. Um, we'll go. We'll do two. We'll do one up each aisle. I don't need, if you can hear me, I don't need the microphone. It's for the camera. Well, everybody else. <laughs> if it's being streamed, I have to help. Um, thank you for joining the race, Governor Well, My name is Timothy Egan. I'm actually a state rep here in New Hampshire. I did vote today to repeal and override the, voto, the veto of the governor for the death penalty. So um, unfortunately, we disagree. But I was a resident of Massachusetts, and I did vote for you for governor, um, even though I'm a Democrat. But my question is, the biggest issue in civil 
liberties that I see in our country today is we make no laws that affect a male in our society, yet all we're talking about is laws that are affecting the female in our society. Yeah. How will you address that topic? Because I think it it is... Well, I will point out that, for example, the recent uh, abortion laws from the South, that is not just a matter of discretion and, and legislative uh, choosing. That's a matter of gender equality. Nobody would ever write such a law for a man. And those law, even though Governor Ivey, who signed the law in uh, uh, Alabama, is a woman, that was all propelled by uh, men. Uh, and uh, you know, every every senator in, in Alabama who, who voted for that was uh, a white white male. Uh, and uh, it, it just goes beyond my most basic instincts in, in answer to the first question about being very fast out of the gate on LGBTQ. Uh, that's an invidious distinction, and I think an unlawful distinction, and I think an unconstitutional distinction. And I was so proud to have played the role I did in removing the invidious distinction of the ban on marriage equality. It was plain uh, as the nose on your face that it was unconstitutional because there was a 1967 Supreme Court case called Loving versus Virginia, Virginia that held that the anti-miscegenation laws were unconstitutional on the same grounds, due process and equal protection. Uh, and that's you can't have marriages between black and white. Well, all right, that's pretty much on all fours with the case that the Supreme Court, bless him, uh, decided, but uh, as Mayor Pete likes to point it out, decided by a single vote. So our freedoms are quite fragile, and a lot of them hang by a single vote, so we do have to be vigilant. I may have to rejoin the ACLU. We should end on that. That is an excellent line, um, but we'll go up here with one more. Good evening, Governor. San Francisco recently banned the use of facial surveillance. Would you support such a ban of this inaccurate and unreliable technology? Facial surveillance? Yeah. Facial recognition surveillance? For what, uh, red lights and that sort of thing? Uh, San Francisco recently passed a ban on facial recognition technology used by law enforcement, um, in part because it is incredibly inaccurate, particularly in identifying people of color, older people, and younger people. But uh, I'm sorry, I guess I never had occasion to use that when I was a prosecutor. What, what, it, what stage of the proceedings new. does it come in? It comes in um, in terms of um, like street surveillance. Um, the other issue that this comes up in a question is that we're seeing cases where instead of physical prisons, we're seeing the use of mass surveillance to try and contain people and police people. And facial surveillance comes in this way. Where Oh, well, I can see a Fourth Amendment issue there, being a right. Fourth Amendment hawk as, as I am. Uh, you know, a lot of cases do get prosecuted because uh, Macy's and all the stores have surveillance cameras, and that's how they caught the uh, bombers in, in the, the Boston uh, Marathon uh, bombing. But you're talking, you're talking law enforcement facial, uh, facial surveillance. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to drawing some lines uh, around that. It's what I call the NSA issue, over-spying on citizens. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, after this, I'm going to pull up my cell phone and we're going to get you to be an ACLU member. We'll, we'll I'll have you apply online. Uh, but with that... You don't, you don't have a little pamphlet you can give me? No. Just give me the we'll website. We'll do it more immediate via technology. 
Um, but I want to thank everybody for coming tonight. Um, this has been a wonderful session. We're going to be doing more of these. So if you meet with a candidate in the next few weeks, please encourage them to do civil liberties in the presidency. We want to make sure that civil liberties are a prominent issue in this presidential primary because you know for a fact that the next election will decide the fate of your civil rights. So thank you again for coming. And I'm guessing the governor may stick around if you want to shake his hand or take his picture. Sure. sure. Thank you. Very good. Thanks for listening to the UNH Law Podcast. Learn more about us by visiting law.unh.edu or following UNH Law on social media. Be sure to comment and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Opinions discussed are solely the opinion of the faculty or host and do not constitute legal advice or necessarily represent the official views of the University of New Hampshire.